Yes, we are starting a new series today in James called Rethinking Religion, which we're excited to do. Chris is down in Juarez, as I mentioned, or maybe I didn't mention, he's down in Juarez uh, with the kids. Um, And so we are starting this today and I'm kicking it off. So what comes to mind for you when I say the word religion? Is it, is it a positive connotation or more of a negative connotation? More negative, right? I mean, for many, there's a few. I mean, there's things about it that perhaps are heartwarming and all that, but it's a complicated word. Uh, honestly, we use it in a lot of different contexts. We might say, for instance, someone who exercises a lot exercises religiously. Uh, we might, uh, for instance, a friend of yours who doesn't go to church might ask, so are you one of those religious people? And I don't think they mean like, are you one of those awesome religious people? <laughs> right? It never means that. Uh, we might refer, for instance, to terrorists as religious extremists or religious fanatics. Right? It's a word that's got a lot of baggage. And it's, it's hard to think of a context in which people mean it positively nowadays. And so what I thought might be helpful is to look back just briefly through history at a couple of famous people and how they thought about the subject of religion. Abraham Lincoln, for instance, said, when I do good, I feel good. When I do bad, I feel bad. That's my religion. <laughs> Profound. Uh, let's see. Lucille Ball said, I have an everyday religion that works for me. Love yourself first and everything else falls into line. Okay. So that's one, that's one approach. I, I don't know how that worked out for her, but, but perhaps loving yourself first. Let's see. What else do we have? Mark Twain said, man is a religious animal. He's the only religious animal. He's the only animal that has the true religion. Several of them. He's the only animal that loves his neighbor as himself and cuts his throat. If his theology isn't straight, he's made a graveyard of the globe and trying his honest best to smooth his brother's path to happiness and heaven. A little dark. Even darker is Edgar Allan Poe, who says, All religion, my friend, is simply evolved out of fraud, fear, greed, imagination, and poetry. Bleak, but it's Edgar Allan Poe. Dr. John Henrik Clark more recently said, Religion is the organization of spirituality into something that became the handmaiden of conquerors. Nearly all religions were brought to people and imposed on people by conquerors and used as a framework to control their minds. That's maybe the darkest yet. There's one more. Mark Twain again said, there's only been one Christian. They caught him and crucified him early. Jesus. That's who he's talking about. (laughs) Sharp crowd. Uh, so what are some of the themes that we can identify even from those quotes, which are obviously just a, a spattering of different quotes? I think a couple of things. Religion can be defined as whatever works for me, whatever works in my life. I think religion has often been defined as being hypocritical and harsh, even violent. A couple of weeks ago, if you were here, we talked about the fact that Christians throughout our history killed each other over whether or not we did baptism right. It's not a great track record. And then thirdly, religion can be fear-based and made up and has often been used to justify coercion and violence and has been co-opted by governments and powers and used to control people. Those are some harsh points. There's some good observations. And whether they're true or not, that is the experience of at least these folks experiencing what Christianity and what religion 
is. So what do we do with that? What do we do now, kind of moving forward from that? How do we build a church that does stuff like sends missionaries to, to Juarez and dedicates children and, and, and does group and life together? How do we do religion in a way that looks a lot more like what Christ intended than what those quotes seem to purvey? How do we get beyond 2,000 years of tradition and religion and go back to what Christ commissioned us to be 2,000 years ago? Well, in part, I think we do that, we, we accomplish that by regularly and continually, regularly going back to the word of God, looking back at the very earliest Christians and saying, how did they do this in their context? And how can we bring that forward into ours? So today we want to look at one of the very earliest accounts of the Bible uh, the New Testament has of what the followers of Christ did 2,000 years ago. Now we tend to approach the New Testament as if it was written in the order in which we read it. Like the Gospels with the stories of Jesus' birth and life and death and resurrection. And then the follow-up letters and all the additional materials and appendixes. That's the order in which the story happened. And so that's the order in which it's presented in Scripture. But it's not the order in which it was written. The Gospels weren't written first. In fact, they came, some of them, decades later. The very first book of the Bible was the book of James. It is the oldest account we have of what the early church looked like. The church was founded in about 33 AD, about the time that Jesus was resurrected and ascended to heaven. And James is writing this just over a decade later. And he's writing this. Here are the words that it says. This letter is from James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm writing to the 12 tribes, Jewish believers scattered abroad. So this book of James, which is written before any of the gospels, is written before the Jerusalem council happened. It's written before Paul even began his ministry. James says, I am a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm writing to the 12 tribes. We know from context and from other texts that this writer, James, is not the James who was a disciple of Jesus. That James was probably actually had already been martyred at this point. And we know from other texts that this James is actually probably, almost certainly, James, the younger brother of Jesus, the son of Mary and Joseph. And we know from the gospel accounts that James and his brothers didn't believe Jesus any time during Jesus' ministry on earth. In fact, they taunted him. They made fun of him. They doubted and questioned him and tried to get him to return home, to return to the family business throughout ministry. So this is written by somebody who during most of his time with Jesus did not believe Jesus's message. But at some point, Jesus is resurrected and presents himself to James and to his brothers and all of them are converted. And James, the younger brother of Jesus, becomes the leader of the church in Jerusalem. He becomes foundational, in fact, in the establishment of the church. And, and you can see throughout the letters that he's influential on, on the Jerusalem council. And he's in, influential on Peter and on Paul. And they regularly ask for his advice and his leadership. So that's the author. That's who James is. And to whom is he writing? It says, I'm writing to the 12 tribes, Jewish believers scattered abroad. See, there are these little pockets of Jewish Christians that were scattered throughout the Mediterranean, Mediterranean world because these Jewish Christians were being killed by Rome. They were being killed by Rome's kind of local leader, Herod Antipas. But they were also being hunted and killed by the Jewish leaders who saw this new religion as a threat, saw this new religion as an apostasy. So they were literally hunting down and imprisoning and killing Christians. One of the Pharisees that led this was a Pharisee named Saul who would later become the apostle Paul. Saul, who, who led the charge in the stoning of Stephen, a disciple of Jesus. 
This man is hunting down Christians. And so these Christians have left Jerusalem. They've left uh, the area of Palestine seeking, basically becoming refugees, losing their homes and their families and and their, their work and all these different things. The church in Jerusalem has been reduced to basically existing and hiding, kind of like the underground secret churches in countries today that don't allow Christianity. That's the context in which James is writing. And he writes to these Christians who are distributed, who are refugees, who've lost everything. And he says these words, dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance is a chance to grow. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. In the face of persecution, in the face of very real injustice, in the recent memory of having lost everything, James writes them and says, consider this an opportunity for great joy. It just sounds like horrible advice (laughs) or at least bad counseling. But it also sounds a lot like the words of Jesus from Matthew 5. Listen to these. God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things against you because you are my followers. Be happy about it. Be very glad. For a great reward awaits you in heaven. And remember, the ancient prophets were persecuted in the very same way. James is using the same sort of language that he heard his brother Jesus use not that many years before. And he's saying it again into this context, into the persecution which Jesus predicted that they would experience. But even though Jesus had predicted it, that had to be a hard message for them to hear. I mean, they had every right to be angry. They had every right to stand up and fight. They had every right to say, this is not fair. And they saw many Jewish fighters and Jewish rebels who were doing exactly that and fighting. But to that, James says these words. Understand this, my dear brothers and sisters. You must all be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. Human anger does not produce the righteousness God desires. Now, we've all probably heard that, voice, that verse quoted at some point in our lives, and oftentimes it's applied to some sort of very life, everyday life sort of situation. Like when you're in a fight with your wife, make sure that you are slow to speak. No, quick to listen. I need to get this right. My wife's sitting right here. <laughs> Slow to speak, slow to get angry, quick to listen, all those different things. And that's great advice. I'm sure that James would be fine with us using it so that sort of interpretation. But that's not the context to which he's writing. He's writing into a life and death situation to refugees who had given up everything for their faith, who knew people who had been killed for their faith. And he says, anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Now, that word righteousness, the Greek is dekaisune or something like that which could equally be translated as justice. And actually, I think in our context, it makes more sense. For us, righteousness, oftentimes we think of as sort of like personal piety and holiness. But for a Jewish person, that concept of justice and righteousness would be completely interwoven, like inseparable between the two. And what he's talking about is, is, is justice. And he's saying human anger will never, can never produce the kind of justice that God desires. It won't. James continues, and this is interesting. He goes an angle that I just wouldn't anticipate. He says, so get rid of all the filth and evil in your lives and humbly accept the word that God has planted in your hearts. For it has the power to save your souls. 
You know, he's just said to them, I know things are really, really hard, but count it all joy. And by the way, get rid of all the evil in your life. That's not the direction I would anticipate him going. It doesn't sound very comforting, but I think at least in part, what he's saying is what we've often as parents said to our kids. I know that your brother hit you, but you hitting him back doesn't fix it. You work on you. All right. You do you. I think he's saying, and I know it sounds simplistic, almost childish, but so much of the stuff that I struggle with in my faith is the childish stuff that I'm still working out. I think he's saying your anger won't change the real injustices that other people have toward you and have accomplished towards you. You focus on fixing the only person that you can fix. You do you. And then he reminds them of the truth that they need. The very word of God has been written in them on their hearts. If they will humbly accept it. We see that in verse 21 and humbly accept the word that God has planted in your hearts. Now this is a reference that James, James's Jewish audience, his first audience would have known. Well, James is referencing the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah, who had written to Israel on speaking on behalf of God back when they had sinned against God and they had had their cities destroyed and they had their temples destroyed and they'd all been carted off to Babylon and they were in exile and they're at the lowest point of their life. And into that context, the prophet Jeremiah speaks these words. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They're plans for good and not for disaster to give you a future and a hope. That verse is so familiar. We hear it quoted probably quite often, but sometimes we forget the context into which it's spoken. This is not God on a sunny afternoon when everything's going well. This is God speaking to Israel that had sinned desperately against him, who had lost everything, who's at the lowest point of their low. When all the evidence seemed to point to hopeless, God said, I have a plan and it's for your good. I have a hope and a future for you. Trust me. And then to expound on that, God in chapter 31 says, The day is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. This covenant will not be like the one that I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and brought them up out of the land of Egypt. They broke that covenant, though I loved them as a husband loves his wife, says the Lord. But this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I'll put my instructions deep within them. And I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. That last phrase, I will be their God and they will be my people. You see that a number of times in scripture. In fact, it's one of the last things that we see in the very last story in scripture and revelation, where that's a picture of when God comes and he brings a new heaven and a new earth. He says, and I will be their God. I will live among them and they will be my people. That is a picture of heaven. That is what... That is the hope that the idea of, of if it being written on their hearts, that's the hope that James is, James is referencing here, speaking to these Jewish Christian refugees who've lost everything. He's reminding that there's a hope, there's a future, and that God's very word has been written on their hearts. <coughs> Excuse me. And he says to them, so get rid of all the filth and the evil in your lives and humbly accept the word that God has planted in your heart for it is the power to save your soul. He's saying, don't make the same mistakes that your forefathers made. Don't forget God. Don't walk away from God. This is the new covenant that God has promised and he's brought it now. He's fulfilled it in the person of Jesus Christ. It's available to you now. He's written it on your hearts if you're willing to humbly listen to it. 
but not just listen to it. James continues. He says, but don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. Otherwise, you're only fooling yourselves. You can't just listen and ignore it. God wrote his truth in you on your heart. But you still have a free will. You still have a choice. You still can choose how you respond when you hear that word to either listen to it and obey it or not. James then goes on to describe what the law looks like lived out. He says, for instance, and I'm actually adding the for instance. So I say, for instance, if you claim to be religious, but don't control your tongue, you're fooling yourself and your religion is worthless. That's the second time he said, you're fooling yourself. I think that's worth noting. If you claim to be a follower of Christ, but you constantly shoot off your mouth and you say hurtful things and you try to control people or you spread gossip, if you post garbage online on social media that's political or it's angry or it's, you know, whatever, you might be right, you might be correct, but it's still wrong. And what James says is in response to that, if you don't control your tongue or your fingers, your religion is worthless. But then he offers the counter picture to what the perfect law of God that is written on our hearts looks like if it is lived out. Next verse, he says, pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means caring for the orphans and the widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. By contrast to what religion doesn't look like, what worthless and dead religion looks like, he's saying this is what God's values. This is the very heart of God. This is what God wants from you, from us. Notice that he doesn't say that injustice doesn't matter. He's not saying, so yeah, injustice happens, live with it. He's saying, instead of getting angry, instead of fighting for your own rights, instead of trying to defend yourself, turn that energy into caring for those in need around you to the orphans and the widows, the poor, the hungry. That is what pure Religion looks like religion, according to James, is dead and useless and worthless and garbage unless it's producing good in this world in the name of Jesus, reaching out to the powerless, the hurting, the least of these, as Jesus said. I think if James was here and sitting with us, he wouldn't disagree with any of those quotes that I read at the beginning. He certainly wouldn't be surprised by any of those quotes looking at the history of the church. I think he would say, yes, of course, that's what they've observed because that's the only fruit they saw the church bearing during those times. But that's not the whole story. That's not religion the way Jesus envisioned it. Jesus, my brother, envisioned it. So I think we have to ask the question, what fruit is our 21st century American Christianity producing? Now, I'm going to get to some positives. um, But let me start by saying, first, I think for many people... In our culture, we've made religion about religion. There's nothing wrong necessarily with coming in and and having great music or or a beautiful church building or uh, great kids programs or great sermons. There's nothing necessarily wrong with those things. But as I said before, what we tend to do in our tradition is we make our religion about those things. Those things that are meant to simply be vehicles to deliver truth. Vehicles by which we can proclaim truths of who God is and share them with the world. Start to develop preferences start to develop systems that we think are right over other systems. And we turn inward, we turn inward to the point that it becomes about religion for religion's sakes. It becomes more about meeting our needs than about meeting the needs of others. 
And I think it makes sense in our context. We live in a consumer culture and that's not an indictment. That's just an observation. That's just true. That's how our culture works. In virtually every other area of your life, we go to a different service provider to receive the services and we evaluate those providers on their ability to meet our needs and expectations, right? Is this doctor a good pediatrician? That's a valid question. Uh, who's the best contractor to finish my, my kitchen remodel? That's a real question. Uh, who's going to be the best cable provider for high-speed internet in my neighborhood? Those are real questions that we have to ask in order to be good consumers, wise consumers. But the problem is we bring that same thing to church. It's understandable, but it doesn't work. And in turn, churches in response have become more and more about trying to identify what do people want and how do we give them what they want and, and how do we make sure that it's all super accessible and it's all safe and and there's nothing necessarily wrong with that because we want to reach as many people as we possibly can. But in turn, what happens is the church starts to look like something very different than the church that James is outlining. It starts to turn inward. In our culture, we love good speakers. TED Talks is a thing. Like where people just sit and watch someone talk. That's remarkable. I guess you're doing it right now. <laughs> but we love to come to church and we love to hear a talk on Sunday mornings. We love to walk away and really feel challenged, but don't we want to do more than just feel challenged? Don't we want to actually be challenged to live differently and to be held accountable for not just nodding our heads and going, Hmm, good point, pastor. Don't we want more than that? Something that sounds not just sounds powerful, but is actually powerful when we act upon it. The question that James is asking are, are we hearers of the word? Or are we hearers and doers of the word? Because in James' book, there's no such thing as a follower of God who isn't a hearer and a doer. You have to be both. If you're not acting on it, you don't believe it. And you're not a follower. Verse 14 of chapter 2 says, What good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but don't show it by your actions? Can that kind of faith save anyone? Suppose you see a brother or a sister who has no food or clothing, and you say goodbye and have a good day. Stay warm and eat well. But then you don't give that person any food or clothing. What good does that do? For James, this is super practical, super tangible. This is not like ivory tower, theological, lofty, blah, blah, blah. This is like boots on the ground. Are you feeding the hungry among you? Are you clothing the naked among you? Are you caring for your brothers and sisters in Christ? Or are you simply saying, we'll pray for you. Sorry that you're experiencing that. Verse 17, so you see, faith by itself isn't enough. Unless it produces good deeds, it's dead and useless. Now, someone may argue, some people have faith, others have good deeds. But I say, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? I'll show you my faith by my good deeds. You say you have faith for you believe that there's one God. Good for you. Even the demons believe this. And they tremble in terror. How foolish. Can't you see that faith without good deeds is useless? Believing the right thing is important, but it's not enough, according to James, to give mental assent to some theological truth. Even the demons do that. We have to live this out by doing real, practical, tangible good works. So as Protestants, as evangelicals, we, we love this idea and we embrace the idea that we're not saved by works. Right? In so many religions, you have to do good deeds in order to earn a, a good place in the afterlife or a, a better life in your next life. 
It's all about trying to live up to the, the standard of the cosmos or whatever. In Christianity, we believe that there's nothing we can do to make ourselves right with God. We aren't saved by our good works. It's by grace alone that we're saved, right? Luther, in fact, really struggled with the book of James. He was not a big fan of the book of James because he felt like it weakened his emphasis on works, weakened his belief that, that it is by grace alone that we are saved. He wasn't even sure that he wanted it included in the New Testament. So when he translated the New Testament into German in 1522, he wrote a note in the prophets warning his readers that James was a lesser biblical book. Bold, right? Here's, here's what he wrote. St. James's epistle is really a right straw epistle compared to, I've never called anything straw-y. I've never used that insult. I'll start. A right straw-y epistle compared to these others, Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, 1 Peter and 1 John, for it is nothing of the nature of the gospel about it. Okay? Well, if the gospel is defined as God does all the work of salvation and we receive it freely then he's right. There's nothing in James that specifically has that nature of the gospel about it. But if the gospel, if the good news of the gospel is that we have been saved by grace alone to do the good work of God, to join him in his mission, it doesn't weaken God's grace. It simply gives our salvation a greater purpose. It defines both what we are saved from and what we are saved for, what we are saved to. The Apostle Paul addresses this very plainly in a letter that he wrote to the church in Ephesus two decades later, two decades after James wrote this to this fledgling church. He wrote these words in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by work so that none, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. We are saved by grace to do good works. We are saved from sin and death by the grace of God and by grace alone, but not just for us. We are saved to, we are saved for something so much bigger than us. We are saved for the mission of God. He's invited us to be a part of what he is doing. Think of that part of his restoration in this world so that the world might experience the reign and rule of God in this place as it is in heaven, that they might experience the kingdom of God in this place as it is in heaven. This is Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. These are the plans. God's desire, God's plan was that he prepared for us in advance is that we would join him, bringing his kingdom, his rule and reign. So I think the question we have to ask is how are we doing? How is not just the church globally, not the church historically, how are we as Emmanuel experiencing this? And I got to tell you, so I've, I've been here uh, since September. So just over 10 months uh, I've been here and, and I'm blown away by the number of stories I hear of how you are doing this in tangible and practical ways. Many of you. I mean, there's the programmatic stuff, uh, that, that we can talk about, you know, like the kids that are down in Juarez right now, that's a multi-decade relationship that we have with Emmanuel's children's home. That's amazing. That's tangible. That's practical. That's doing it the right way. This week, the teenagers are there. Next week, a bunch of adults are going down there to do it. I told you about the, the backpack drive that Ace of the city is doing. That's also a long time relationship that we've had with that partner, Ace in the city. 
Uh, we've got you know, people that are involved in Arrive Ministries, doing refugee care, all those kinds of things. And those are all the structural things, and there's lots of those. But there's also so many that I just hear by word of mouth, things that I've never heard of before. Couples that spend their weekends going down and being on the street in downtown Minneapolis, handing out sandwiches and prayer and hope to homeless people. Small groups that go down to First Covenant Church and, and staff and, and provide all the food for a soup kitchen to homeless people. People that are involved on Union Gospel Mission regularly. Uh, there's one guy that I talked to that he goes to hospitals and just plays his guitar for people that are sick and in, in serious health problems. Just the, the list goes on and on and on. Creative ways that you are finding to live out this mission. Many of you are doing this. You're living it out with your very real faith and very real tangible expressions of faith. And I think in a lot of ways, I've actually learned from you. So to you, I say, well done. I love theology. I love kind of the lofty tower stuff, ivory tower. And I'm learning in this place, in this community, the value of really bringing that to the street. But I know I'm not alone in being not able to completely have figured out this living it out thing. I know there are probably those here who come every week, who, who sit through the services, who maybe write out checks, uh, who in, you know, agree with our theology and like the music and think the sermons are fine and have your kids in the programs. Maybe you're here because you think your kids need Jesus. Whatever it is, you're here and you're sitting through it. But that's pretty much all it is for you. I mean, this whole idea of kind of working it out and doing good works and, and taking risks and, and living out your faith and tactics tangible <laughs> that's tactical is practical and tangible never mind and so I, I would ask you the question are you just coming to church every week and doing religion and if so then according to james is your faith alive is your faith real what would james say a famous minnesotan theologian once said these words Anyone who thinks sitting in church can make you a Christian must also think that sitting in a garage can make you a car. Thank you, Garrison. We miss you. Chris is doing a great job, though. It's funny because it's so ridiculous and so obvious, yet I think in so many ways that that's what some of us are doing. I mean, coming and just kind of going to church and maybe hoping we absorb some of it or our kids will absorb some of it and we're not really living it out day to day to day. And I think if that's the case, then church is really just like a social club. Or a theological club, or a support club, or whatever it is. It, it's a club. Those things are fine, but as far as James is concerned, if that's what your religion looks like, it's dead. It's useless. It's worthless. It's a, it's a club. It's a click. And I know that sounds harsh. This isn't meant to be a guilt trip. It's an invitation. Our invitation at ECC is experience God with us. And I would say to you, if that's you, if you're coming and you're experiencing our weekend services every week and that's all you experience, then you're missing out on the so much more that you could be experiencing on a regular basis. God didn't just invite you to religion. He invited you to a mission, to a cause, his cause. So I would say to you, quit the club and join the cause. All of us at every stage need that reminder. I mean, truthfully, the longer I'm in faith, the longer I've been a Christian, the more I'm realizing that our natural tendency, especially in our culture, is for this stuff to turn inward. For us to make it about ourselves and our preferences and our needs. So all of us need that reminder. Things can easily turn into a club. Perhaps this quote. 
might be a bit more poignant. It was said by a man who lived this out, who lived out his faith in amazing, ridiculous ways, and who ultimately gave his life for the good work that he believed his religion, his faith compelled him to. Any religion that professes to be concerned about the souls of men and is not concerned about the slums that damn them, the economic conditions that strangle them, and the social conditions that cripple them is a spiritually moribund religion awaiting burial. I had to look up that word moribund. I wasn't familiar with that. It basically means dying. It basically means circling the drain on its last breath, about to die. And he's saying, if that's what your faith is, if your faith doesn't care about these conditions that have caused the pain and the hurt, if all you're concerned about is conversions, then your faith is dead. He's echoing the words that James says in chapter 2. He ends his chapter 2 with, Just as the body is dead without breath, so also faith is dead without good works. Like James is saying, if we want to experience a transforming, living faith that allows us, us to experience the good plans that God has for us, even in the midst of persecution, even in the midst of injustice and pain and real struggle, if we want to experience that kind of faith, the kind of faith that allows us to consider it all joy, if we want to experience life and not just dead religion, then it's time to quit the club and join the cause. It's time to roll up our sleeves and join the mission. Together, let's rethink religion. Pray with me. God, we thank you for your word. Um, and for the ways in which you have used it for generations to speak to your church. God, we want to faithfully figure out how to follow you in a way that tells your story to everyone that's watching us. That paints a picture of, of your character and your love and your heart. And we acknowledge that we've not always done that, uh, not through the history of the church and, and even not as individuals. There are ways in which we do respond in anger to injustices that we feel. God, help us to respond as you would. Thank you that you've written your word, your truth on our hearts. Give us ears that are willing to hear and hearts that are willing to have you shape us and change us. Give us the courage and the humility to follow you, to obey you to act as you would have us act in this world, to show the world who you are. We ask it in the name of Jesus and by your power. Amen.